Hi, I'm Srishti from Philadelphia, a PhD candidate in pharmaceutics attending the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy. You're listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. Hello and greetings. I'm Stuart Haynes. And I'm Elizabeth Hearn. We're from the University of Mississippi. Welcome to the Pharmacy Forward podcast. In this episode, we are exploring what it takes to get published. Becoming a published author requires internal motivation, hours of work, and self-discipline. Once all the information for a case report, a review article, or a research project is gathered, it takes even more drive to move forward with publication. Today, we will be talking with a thought leader, Dr. Alan Zillick. Alan is the William S. Buck Professor and Head of the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Purdue University College of Pharmacy in Indianapolis, and he has a research scientist appointment at the VA Health Services Research and Development Center for Health Information and Communication. During his career, he has been awarded millions of dollars in research grants and has published over 100 peer-reviewed publications on a variety of topics ranging from hypertension management to tobacco cessation to pharmacogenomics. And in addition to his long list of publications, Alan is an associate editor for the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy, and he served on grant review panels, been a scientific reviewer for 13 scientific journals, and has presented at several national meetings about writing and publishing scientific papers. So clearly, Dr. Zillick has a deep understanding of what it takes to get published. You're right, and we're very fortunate to have this passionate, knowledgeable voice on our podcast today to discuss getting published. Dr. Alan Zillick, welcome to the Pharmacy Forward podcast. Wow, well, thanks for, thanks for having me. Your introduction was really nice, and, and it's humbling. So thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Alan. As we were planning this episode of Pharmacy Forward, I did take some time to try to reflect on my own efforts to get published. And until my PGY-1 residency just last year, I had no research or publication experience at all. And it took some really great mentors pushing me out of my comfort zone to get that ball rolling. So I learned quickly that authorship can be exciting. And within a year, I've had a case report published, a manuscript submitted for review, and another research manuscript in process. But looking back a year ago, I had no idea where to start. Can you tell us a little bit about your start? How did your experience with publications begin? Uh, thanks, Elizabeth. When when we were talking about this, I I had to go back to my CV to see what was listed as my first publication, and it was it was a case report, some similar to what you just mentioned yourself. Uh, in this case, I was a resident at the University of Kentucky. I was on my peds rotation, and we went in to see a kiddo, and he looked blue. And we thought he was we thought he was having respiratory distress, and and we called a code even. And it turns out he was blue not from respiratory distress, but because they were putting blue dye in his tube feeds. And so that led to this case report because it was pretty unique. And so that particular publication, and then even my second one, which was on gene therapy, b- both of those were opportunities that were presented to me when I was a resident and, and really a part of other people sort of coming to me and saying, would, 
you should write this up, or would you be interested in working with me on writing this? On my pediatric rotation, it was it was Robert Kuhn, Bob Kuhn. Bob has has been a great mentor to countless residents and trainees over the years at, at the University of Kentucky. And on the gene therapy article, it was John Armistead, who at the time was director of pharmacy at the University of Kentucky. So so that's really how it sort of sort of got started. And I think it was again having great access to good mentors that encouraged me to to move forward. So, Alan, your story sounds similar to many of us, um, and as young practitioners who are just getting started with publication, identifying where to start can be one of the most difficult pieces of authorship. It, it all comes down to a good idea, I think. Scholarly work starts with identifying a problem and an idea of something worth sharing with others, whether it's an original research or a review of existing research or a letter to the editor or a case report about a unique patient. Um, all of these are great ways to identify things, but what strategies do you use to inspire new ideas and how do you determine if an idea might be worth publishing? I think this has changed for me over time during my career. And really, you know, early on and sort of the examples that we just talked about were things that were not my own necessarily. It was other people's ideas that they came to me and said, would you be interested in working on this? You know, as as I sort of progressed from being a trainee into my my earlier years in in my academic career, the ideas were more were mine, but they came from clinical practice. I, I particularly early on had my own clinical practice, and uh, and so a lot of the questions and ideas came from what you saw every day in clinic. But more recently, as I've transitioned away from clinical practice, uh, and 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 had other collaborators and and research teams, the ideas come from those that still practice and they are part of our team and they bring up these questions and, and ask, is this something we should look at? Uh, I think other places where these ideas come from a lot is from reading the literature and where are the gaps in the literature? Also, usually in a really well-written paper, there's sort of a next steps. What, what, what needs to happen next with the science? And those can, those can lead to other good ideas for your own research. I think that identifying a topic can either come very easily, for example, like the rare case report you mentioned, or a process that needs quality improvement, but sometimes it can be a struggle to figure out what's next. And in my first research project, my idea was sparked after some brainstorming sessions with a few great mentors. My research mentors became my co-authors on the publication, so I know that creating a good team is key. So let's talk about the authoring teams. Who are important team members to have in terms of expertise? Yeah, I think uh, I think with any successful endeavor, you want to have a great team, and maybe to some extent with with writing, your team may depend a bit on the type of paper you're working on. So, for example, if you're working on uh, what I would call a more scientific related paper, research paper, your team may include some clinician experts. And, and for a lot of my work, that that's usually both pharmacists as, as well as medicine and sometimes nursing. So clinician experts, those that certainly are sort of in the trenches in clinical practice, and then those that may also be clinicians but are also scientists and sort of have more training in research methods to help lead the direction of parts of the team. 
but there are other important people that might be part of that. So uh, if you're doing a review article, you still want the clinicians uh, because they're going to they're gonna provide that, that great perspective that I think is helpful for the discussion. But uh, you might also involve a librarian. I've had several papers where librarians were key to helping us with the review process and making sure that it was thorough. You also may want to involve, in either case, other scientists that have expertise in both quantitative methods or qualitative methods, again, depending on the work you're doing. And then some of my most favorite collaborators are statisticians, particularly when you're working in scientific papers. Having a great biostatistician involved in the process, and and really early on, uh, because they're so helpful at thinking about various aspects of not only the statistical analysis, but more importantly, the data collection and the methods. Uh, So these are some really great team members to have. Well, I think working with a team has many, many advantages, but it does require some effort to organize all the work. So Alan, once you've got a team together, a great team assembled, people committed to doing the project and writing the paper, how do you approach the writing process? What's your approach to writing, particularly with the team? Yeah, I think sometimes um, it, it can be a bit challenging in the team environment to to say who's gonna who's gonna write and and who and in what way. Uh, I would say my experience has been that most papers there's sort of a single person who generally takes the lead initially on drafting the paper, and and that person usually is either the first or last author on the publication. But but they but they take the the lead on the initial draft. Though I have had instances where we have divided up the work, and and I would say with with research papers, um, you know there is a there's sort of a formula to it, or or they're highly structured. There's an intro, a method, a result, a discussion, and and in writing, usually it's easiest to start with the methods. A lot of times that's because the methods are already written in some form. Um, at a minimum, you had to put quite a bit of detail of your methods into your IRB application. If you had grant a grant grant funding associated with the project, you had a lot of methods involved usually in the grant application. So usually that's the easiest section to start with. Next is usually the results. A lot of the results flow from tables and figures first. So Getting those drafted and developed really is part of what are we finding from our statistical approach and statistical analysis allows us to you know use those tables and figures then to sort of naturally draft the text that supports those. So usually the results section for me is the next easiest one to write. And then what's left is the intro and discussion. Typically, the intro is a bit easier. Usually, you've already had to describe somewhere, why are you doing this? Uh, what's, the, what's the literature already say? What's the gap in the literature? And then what's your sort of research question or objective? So usually, the intro is the next easiest. And then the last is a discussion. And it's usually the hardest to write, but it has to flow out of what uh, both what your results are, as well as maybe the journal you're writing for, the audience you want to write for, uh, may dictate to some extent what paragraphs uh, in the discussion, uh, you know, what text of paragraphs are in the discussion. But, you know, you don't have to write a full research project paper either. Um, certainly, if you have a narrative publication, a review article, a case report, that process is going to look different. And again, it may depend a lot on the type of journal 
that you're targeting. Most of the journals have style guidelines and other guidelines about these types of papers and what they expect in them. So I think it's a good idea to, to look at the journal first in those cases and see what, what is their guidance for those types of papers. Uh, and then usually you can also look at other papers that were published in those journals to give you some idea. I'm happy you brought that up because I think one thing that people may overlook is how to target the right journal. When you're writing, how do you decide which journal you want to apply to first? Is there one journal you always go to or do you personalize the journal depending on the topic? Early on in my career, I didn't know a lot about journals other than sort of the few that I read as a trainee and then the really big ones that we all know of. And the reality is there's lots of others. Um, and so you have to ask mentors who have experience with journals, uh, you know, ask them for some ideas about either, you know, journals that they read or ones, more importantly, that they've published in. I think that's really important because there's a huge variability in the process by which journals review, provide feedback, and then ultimately publish papers. And so my experience has been that when I have a good experience as an author with a journal, I'm much more likely to resubmit other work to those journals. And, and so what I mean by that as an author, good experience means that when I submit a paper, I get feedback about that paper, a review uh, in a timely manner. Um, great journals will do that in a month or less. So if you submit your paper, you expect to hear first decision within a month or less. And, and I love that because that means they're not keeping your work a long time to make a decision. Particularly if they're going to say no, you, you don't want them to have your paper for six months. So I think having experience with good experiences with journals makes you more likely to then think about those as the journals you want to publish with later. And you can find a lot of the statistics on their websites. And quite frankly, if you can't find those statistics, maybe that's a red flag for that journal. Um, other considerations are um, things like indexing. You know, we want people to find your work. And while with EPUBs and, and just the internet in general, finding publications is a bit easier than it used to be, but indexing in places like PubMed uh, certainly can be important. Some consideration about impact factor or some other ranking or rating really about who reads the journal is, is also consideration. And then uh, I would say last, but importantly, is some journals have publication costs. Uh, and this is, you know, this is an important consideration too. If, if you don't have any money to, to afford the publication, you don't want to look at journals that have a publication cost. I think the other thing that's, that's important to consider here is some journals have publication costs and their, their sole purpose really is to publish your paper if you pay them. And it's not always a high-quality journal. And so making sure that you have conversations with other members of your team, those with experience, to ensure that you're avoiding what I would call some of those predatory journals who really just want to take your money and then they'll publish your paper without any kind of high-quality review. You bring up great points about predatory journals, and it really seems that calling on mentors or co-authors is a great way to navigate selecting the right journal, like you said. One thing I want to talk about is how to determine who should be listed as a co-author. For example, if a mentor contributed to helping you find a journal or with idea conception, but they didn't follow your project long term, 
How do you select who can be a co-author versus who is simply listed in the acknowledgments? This is a great topic to discuss about uh, about authorship. There's probably a couple of things to really think about. The first is what is your criteria your if you're the, the sort of the first author or the lead author, what is your criteria for being an author on the paper? There are really great journals that have authorship checklists, and they basically state what what does an author have to do to certify their role as an author. So, for instance, the Journal of American Medical Association uh, really has four categories to determine if you meet author criteria. The first is that you have to contribute in a substantial way to either the concept or design of the work, the acquisition of the data, the analysis of the data, or the interpretation of the data of the work. So you don't have to have been involved in all the process, but at least some part of it. The second criteria, then, is that you have to have participated in drafting or critically revising the work. Third, you need to give final approval of the works in its sort of final format when it's submitted. And then you have to agree to be accountable for the integrity of the work. And so if those four criteria are met, for me, as sort of the lead author, I will invite team members who agree to do that or have been part of that. Uh, if they don't fit those, then someone who needs to just be acknowledged. So, for example, um, I've had both staff and trainees, students, residents, who have helped with just data collection. And so, so their role as someone who only did data collection for a discrete period of time really may not rise to the level of authorship. Uh, similarly, Sometimes you may have a statistician who really only helps you do an analysis, and that's all they do. They're not involved in anything else, and really they do the analysis and they give it to you. They're not necessarily involved in interpreting the results. So there has been times where someone who's done some of the stats may not, again, their work may not fit all the criteria to be an author. So I think that's some of the considerations for who authors are. Um, the other important consideration is is sort of about authorship order, and, and this is really important to talk with your team early on about this. Who both should be considered an author, as well as then where and where should they be author order? Usually, you know, the important places in authorship are first author, last author, and and sometimes second author, and typically second and last author, maybe more senior level people or those that were sort of mentors on the project, particularly if there's a trainee who's the first author. After that, really, I would say it sort of depends on who's contributed and in what order. Uh, I've had some papers where uh, the first author has chosen to list the rest of the authors in alphabetical, or starting after the second author, third, fourth, fifth, is really maybe in descending order of contribution, though it's sometimes hard to, to delineate all that. Um, well, I think it's interesting to hear about the process because determining authors isn't something that people always consider up front. And so I think it's really important here. Also, when submitting uh, to the journal, there's a, a, a several steps to the process. First, of course, is when once you submit to the journal, a editor at the journal may screen the paper to determine whether it's a good fit or whether it meets a certain quality bar for the journal. And only then does it go out for peer review. Of course, once it goes out for peer review, there's nothing to say that peer reviewers will be excited about the paper. And so I think it's really common to get 
a rejection from a journal before your work gets accepted for publication. In other words, rejection is part of the process. Really high impact journals, the rejection rates are very high. Uh, like New England Journal of Medicine, it's well over 90%. But even most pharmacy journals, it's over 50%. What are your tips on how you handle all of that? And what have been your experiences with rejection? Well, uh, uh, you know, you just have to try, try again. Um, <laughs> you, you already said this, but it's, it's true, Stuart, that rejection is just part of the process. Uh, I like to think, and I've told some of my trainees, that one rejection just means you're that one step closer to getting it published. So uh, you, you have to have some thick skin and uh, know that this is part of the process. But I think importantly is that Good journals, even if they are, don't want to publish your paper, will give you feedback. They, they will provide, even if it was just the editor may provide review comments, even if it didn't get sent out for peer review. In other cases, it does get sent out for peer review, and you get those comments back even if that particular journal decided they weren't going to publish your paper. Those are really valuable for then revising your paper before you're going to submit it elsewhere. So that process can still be so valuable even if you're not, you know, again, not accepted the first time. Once a paper is submitted, the next step is that the journal editor may come back and say that they like your work, but they recommended some edits. Some edits are minor changes, while others may be major rewrites of your work. How do you use this feedback to make your work better? Do you have to make every change that the reviewer suggests? You know, papers go through a peer review process where, you know, anywhere from two to maybe five reviewers have looked at that paper. As I mentioned, you do have to have a bit of thick skin because, you know, you're, you're sort of passionately engaged in that work. And so when others are critical of it, it's sometimes hard to read. When you first look at the review comments, if you're still boiling a little bit under the skin, it's maybe best just to tuck them away for a day or two or a week and then look at them again. And if you can sort of look at them in a frame of mind where you're not really frustrated, then it's the right time to start revising it. Recognizing that reviewers, by and large, while they can be critical of your work, their general goal is to make a paper better. And a lot of times, if you take the lens of, of a reviewer when you're reading their comments, you can understand that I just, as the author, may not have been clear about what I wrote. And so the reviewers are just pointing that out, and I need to do a better job of communicating that. You don't have to agree with every single comment, but I do think good authors are responsive to reviewers by at least addressing every comment. So, you know, for example, you may not agree with a specific comment that a reviewer made to say, I would do it this way. And you, you can say that we considered this approach, but our team decided to do this instead, and here's why. So I think providing the rationale to the reviewers, particularly because if you're resubmitting your work, it's likely going to go back to some of those reviewers. And if they can see what your rationale was for why you decided to do it this way, they have a better understanding then of of you know, what your team wanted to do. Uh, and a lot of times you can't say that in the paper, but you have a chance to do it in the response to reviewer section. So one thing I want to touch on is your tactics for pursuing publications while balancing your many other responsibilities. 
it, it takes a, a significant amount of time to put together publications. And we're, we're all being pulled in multiple directions, either through our clinical practice or for some teaching responsibilities. And of course, all of us have personal lives that we want to pursue that's pulling on us as well. So what tips do you have for practitioners or residents who are having to find that they're using their personal time to work on publications while balancing other clinical and professional responsibilities. How do you make the time uh, to do publication and research work? First, I'm, I'm very blessed in that my job description gives me time to do that. It's sort of an expectation of my job. Uh, but I also recognize that when you're early in your career and you're a trainee, it's not always clear where that expectation line is and whether or not your job gives you time to do it. So you have to make time. I find the best way to do this is to schedule it. It's an appointment with yourself. Uh, and in this case, that appointment is to write. And even if it's just 30 minutes, if you schedule it and it's an appointment with yourself, and you know that, but more importantly, you communicate to others who might be wanting part of your time and calendar that that appointment is not reschedulable. It's not something that I will overschedule. Make it one of the most important meetings of the day that you have. If you can do 30 minutes, that's great. Sometimes I find that you do need a bit more time, uh, maybe more like an hour, but importantly, schedule that time, get it on your calendar for uh, several days a week, and schedule it from now until infinity. And don't let anyone else have that time. But writing, writing is, is a practice-based skill. The more you do it, the better you get at it. The more you, you do it, the, f the, the more efficient you become at it. So it's important to do regularly and often uh, in the same way that you might practice a sport or um, a hobby that you do regularly. You get better at it over time. Thank you for the advice, Alan. That's probably something I need to do too. Today, we've covered a lot of topics around getting published, but I'm wondering if you have any pearls of advice you offer to those whom you mentor through their research, whether it be residents, students, or new practitioners. The first important thing is you have to have mentors. Um, so if you don't have them, seek them out. Recognizing that a mentor for uh, writing or, or research-related uh, may be different than mentors you have for other things like clinical practice or career advice. Maybe ask other mentors that you currently have who would be someone else I could approach. But once you find them, uh, let them know you're interested in writing, that you'd like to participate when there's an opportunity. And then after that opportunity comes along, first, say yes. Then second, do your best. Um, be accountable. Be a great teammate. Do it on the timeline that is needed or recommended because this will make your mentor more likely to want to work with you again. And I think for mentors, you have to look for opportunities. It's fairly common for those that are a bit more senior to have these opportunities be asked of them, whether that's an editorial or a review paper. And a lot of times you, as an author, may not have time to do that. But knowing that this is an opportunity where I could work with a trainee, then you make that opportunity available. I think that's really important. Well, Alan, that's great advice. Uh, you've certainly inspired me 
to continue to work with trainees as a faculty member to offer them the chance to be involved with the publication process. And, and the tips you provided today will make the process so much easier for those who are just getting started. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, happy to have done this and, and been part of the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. for listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. If you like this podcast, please subscribe using your favorite podcast app and tell all of your pharmacy friends and colleagues. Be sure to rate us and send us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Pharmacy Forward is produced by the Division of Pharmacy Professional Development at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. For more information about our professional development programs, visit Pharmacy CPD. Dot org. That's pharmacy cpd.org. Thanks for listening.